Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 272, Sitcoms. Derek Myers, this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now, this week, we're talking about sitcoms, situation comedies. I believe it's a dying art form. We're going to get into that. And we're also going to have a top five list of our personal favorite sitcoms of all time. But before we get to that, Derek, any pop culture you've been able to take in this past week, my friend? It's been two weeks, actually, because we had some time Yeah, off. yeah. Well, I was actually on vacation for uh, the better part of last week, which is part of the reason we didn't do the show. And uh, while I was away, while I was traveling, I did have a chance to watch a few things, uh, including a documentary, which I'll get to in a minute. Nice. So Where did you go? I went on a uh, short little cruise of the Caribbean. Nice. It was quite lovely. My wife and I had a chance to do a little getaway. And uh, yeah, no, it was great. If you nice. have the means, I... I suggest you, you check it out. Yes, and as a, uh, as a couple Canadians are getting away this time of year is always nice. Because yeah, we got back just in time for it to start snowing. So, yes, of course. No, I think I think we planned that. Uh, we were <laughs> off by a week, but anyway, all good, all good. Uh, so yeah, anyway, while I was away, I had a chance to watch a few things. Um, uh, the first one I watched was a movie I downloaded from Netflix that dropped a, probably about a month or two ago. It's uh, like a murder mystery. It's called Reptile. And it's um, stars Benicio del Toro, Alicia Silverstone, and believe it or not, Justin Timberlake, uh, along with a ha- handful of other people that you're going to be like, oh, I know who that is, uh, but you probably wouldn't recognize their name. And um, the basic premise is Benicio del Toro is like a, a murder, uh, a homicide detective from, I think they said he's from Philadelphia, and he's moved to this sort of small rinky dink town because uh, he was sort of tied up in some scandal. And, um, He's come to this small town and joined their police force, and then there's a murder. And, of course, because he's like a big-time homicide detective, they're like, well, we're not really experienced in this kind of thing. So they put him in charge, and um, as he's investigating the murder, he starts to uncover all sorts of other stuff. So it was good. I mean, it wasn't fantastic, but, uh, you know, stuff drops on Netflix. You really sort of roll the dice, and this one was definitely better than some of the other crap that's been out there. Uh, I mean, I like Benicio Del Toro. He's a, he's a decent actor, and uh, he does a good job. And... Um, you know, I like a good mystery, so uh, it was sort of a whodunit as you're watching the movie, and uh, it was interesting enough. I did think it was a little long. It runs about two hours and 15 minutes, uh, but uh, again, I was on vacation. I had limited options, so in we, in we go. Uh, also on Netflix, I had a chance to watch the miniseries that dropped, I think, about a month ago. It's called The Fall of the House of Usher. It's loosely based Isn't on— like an old— yeah, so or, so or an old movie or something that sounds familiar in some way. So there's it's the name of a book by Edgar Allan Poe, The Fall of the House of Usher, mm-hmm. and it had previously been turned into a movie. The idea here with this miniseries is it's not a literal adaptation of the book. What it is is the author of the series has taken inspiration from many different works by Edgar Allan Poe and sort of smushed them together uh, to do 
like little mini homages. And again, it's a, it's a murder mystery kind of thing where in episode one, you have this super rich pharmaceutical billionaire who has six children and they're, they've all been murdered. So the first, the, the story opens with him at a funeral for his six children. Jeez. And then through the course of the next seven episodes, because it's eight episodes long, through the course of the next seven episodes, each episode is sort of dedicated to the story of each one of his children. And you get to see like who they were and what their dreams and ambitions were and what their problems were and then how they were killed. And so through the course of this storytelling, you're trying to figure out like what's really going on here. And they try and play it up as like a horror. But you know me, I don't really like horror. And I did not feel that it was horrific. It was more suspenseful, a little like a, mysterious. Like yeah. Well, even that I felt it was like like small T thriller mm -hmm. because it wasn't it wasn't there was nothing in it that I really felt was scary. Like they weren't doing jump scares. They weren't trying to like be frightful. It was more they were trying to create a mood. Again, I think it was it was drawn from the inspirational material of Edgar Allan Poe. So they were trying to lean on that, which is more like gothic and that kind of thing. There is. Uh, the main character who's sort of telling the story has like a brain aneurysm. So he sees things. And part of the, the storytelling device is, is he seeing things because his brain tumor is causing him to, to hallucinate, which we know he is hallucinating or are these ghosts and spirits and demons and specters really there? And, and so that's part of the mystery that you as the as the audience have to decide, like, are these things real or is he imagining them? Well, how could this have happened if it wasn't real? So but it was really good. And the cast is fantastic. And from what I've been told, this ensemble cast has actually been together for two or three seasons and they've done a few different stories, sort of like the um, what's that one? The American Horror Story anthology where every season they take the same cast and they do like a completely new premise and all the character, all the performers play completely different characters. Apparently this, this fall of the house of Usher is that same idea where it's this ensemble of performers that have done two or three seasons of various shows. None of the seasons connect. None of the performers are playing any of the characters they played before, but each season the ensemble has grown and they've added a few new performers. So now that I've learned that I'm actually going to go back and probably watch some of the other things. Um, but anyway, follow the house of Usher. It's on Netflix. It's eight episodes or about an hour pop. I really liked it. I thought it was really, really good. I thought the performances were good. I really enjoyed the story. And if you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe, if you're familiar with his works, which I am, cause I studied uh, literature, um, there's a lot of like wink, wink stuff going on there. So, um, it was interesting. Uh, two more quick ones here. Okay. There is a short film that dropped on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, written and directed by Wes Anderson. Uh, you might recognize that name. He did uh, Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums. He's, he's a, sort of a quirky. Uh, he's got his own style. And um, so he's adapted a role doll story children's author role doll. Uh, the, the film is called the wonderful story of Henry sugar. Now, I didn't know anything about it, um, and uh, it's a it's filmed basically as like a, a play almost. He's he's only got five performers, but the performers are all people that you know. It's uh, Ray Fiennes, Benedict Cumberbatch, Dev Patel, Ben Kingsley, and I can't for the life of me think of the fourth fifth one. I'm sorry, um, and. Um, they basically play multiple roles through the course of this storytelling, but it's it's very Wes Anderson, like it's his style. 
absolutely there's no doubt when you're watching it that you realize this is a Wes Anderson production and it was really good it only runs about a half an hour and uh, I loved it I thought it was great it was sort of whimsical and and fun and if if you're even marginally interested in Wes Anderson and, and the kind of work that he does you'll you'll really like this it was it was quite enjoyable I really really liked it it's on Netflix it's called The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar uh, and then finally I had a chance to watch a documentary just today for 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. Please do tell. What documentary did you watch, my friend? Well, we passed Halloween, so that means it's time to start getting ready for Christmas. And sure enough, all sorts of Christmas stuff is on TV. It's in the stores, and you're hearing the Christmas carols. And the and So anyway, we watched a documentary that actually came out last year on CNN, but it was repeated again just a couple of nights ago, so we recorded it. And it's called Tis the Season, The Holidays on Screen. And it's a retrospective look over you know the last hundred years of all sorts of Christmas movies, the kind of the, the the commonality and story and theme, the way that classic tales have been reimagined, the way things have become like have become classics over time. Um, and it doesn't just focus on the things you would expect. Like, yes, they talk about It's a Wonderful Life and they talk about, um, you know, uh, White Christmas and they talk about m more recent ones like Home Alone. They even talk about Die Hard. They talk yes. about, is it a Christmas movie? <laughs> um, even right up to like newer Christmas stuff from the last, you know, 10 or 15 years. And they do a really good job. I thought they did a really good job of being representative. They, it wasn't just Here's a whole bunch of movie made by white people for white people. There was a lot of movies. It's a lot of Christmas and holiday movies from the last 30 years that are written, directed and starring people of color. And honestly, a lot of them I'd never heard of, uh, you know, and so it was interesting and informative to see how many other, you know, Christmas movies were out there. They also talked about Christmas episodes of TV shows and the importance of that. And uh, even well, like they talked about those TV shows. They talked so about where was like, this on? Is it Netflix? Is that what you said? It was on CNN. On CNN, uh, okay. Yeah, they re we picked it up here in Canada on the Hollywood Suites. They were rerunning it on there, but it was originally run on CNN last year. And it was produced by Playtone, which is uh, Tom Hanks' uh, production company. So Tom Hanks not only is the producer, but he's one of the people they interview. They interview a lot of celebrities. They ask them very uh, – Ron Howard is is – interviewed very candidly he even talks about the the first christmas episode on happy days and he talks about because he was also the director of the the grinch remake with jim carrey so no it was really really good and, and they talked about um you know just a lot of the common themes you see in holiday movies and why they stand the test of time and why so many of them get remade over and over again with slight twists and and uh no it was, it was really good it really puts a puts a smile on your face and brings a tear to your eye it was it was a good primer for christmas and so when it was done i turned to my wife and said okay we gotta start watching christmas Christmas movies. We got about six weeks. Let's get going. So, yeah, that was it. Lots of watching this week. Nice. <clears throat> okay, so I got a couple things I want to go over with you. First of all, I don't know if you heard this, but Patrick Dempsey was named People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive for 2023. Really? For this year? Again, Not I, 10 was, years ago when he was actually on yeah, TV and in the I public know. eye. So, I got f***ed over again. I mean, you know, I should have. Hey, won. man, you're no Patrick Dempsey, but uh... <laughs> from, from 10 years ago. So that's one thing. So me getting f over for the sexiest man alive. And the other thing was, is one of my favorite places to go pretty much anywhere has always been Second City. I've probably been to the Chicago location eight times. 
And Toronto, I've probably been 20 times or more. Uh, I haven't I haven't been since COVID. But I, I started going to the Toronto stage shows back in 93, right around the time that you and I first met, Derek. Okay. Um, so the very first time, I'll never forget, that I ever went to Second City, I waited outside in line, and I got in for the post-show improv session. Like, they let people come in and watch uh, the improv for free because, like, some people get up and they leave after the main stage show is over. So anyway, um, the first time I went to Second City, I, I got in for the improv session, and I got to sit beside Tony Rosado. And I was like totally stoked about that. And then I joined the workshop program at Second City. And then when I met my wife, I introduced her to, to Second City. And we've gone like a whole bunch of times together. Like it's 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 always been my go-to for entertainment. I love live theater. I love sketch comedy. And I really love improv. So, but I hate to say for the first time, I didn't care for it. Really? I, I went for it on the week. I went, we went there on the weekend. I, and it was actually pretty awful. Like the place was half empty on a Saturday night, no less. The cast was bad. The sketches were bad. I didn't even stick around for the improv. That's the one thing I've always loved the most. I couldn't even be bothered to stick around. The show was that bad. Like I just, oh, I was really disappointed in what what it's become. Like, I mean, for comedy lovers, Second City is hallowed ground. You know, now it's on the third floor of an office high rise building, you know, in this impersonal setting with this listless cast. I mean, it used to be, I remember when it was on, um, in Toronto, it was on Lombard and the old fire hall theater had all this history. I don't know. They just moved it. So, Ugh. Let me, let me ask you this though, Chris. Yeah. So we've talked about this before mm-hmm. when we've talked about comedy and humor and how a lot of it is your relationship to the material. Did you find or do you think that because you are getting older and the performers are probably, I'm guessing, in their 20s, that there was a disconnect with the way that they perceive the world, the way that they perceive humor, the way that they like was the content more modern and you just couldn't relate to it because it was so different from your current worldview? Well, I, I don't think so, because like I say, I've been going for for years and I've always enjoyed it. And I, I you know, I enjoy that that sort of sketch comedy stuff. But uh, no, because even my wife was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. This is awful. And like I say, I look around and the place is like half empty. Like, what the hell is going on? Obviously, words getting out that, you know, it's not very good. So nobody's going. So I don't think it was just that, you know. Okay. I mean, I mean, you know me. I yearn for the old days. You know, it's kind of my thing. And I'm old fashioned and all that or whatever. But I don't think it was that. I think it was just, it just wasn't very good. I just, ah. Well, here's one thing I do like, though, is this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, what's the easiest way to tell the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? I don't know. One will see you later and one will see you in a while. That sucked, dude. I actually told my wife that joke and she laughed. Believe it or not, finally she laughed at my dad. Did she laugh now or in a while? This movie was so bad. Most people hate this movie. Maybe looking at it with today's lens. I personally like this movie. It was 
terrible. Lip smacking, back snapping, perfectly delicious. Just awful. I can't, I can't think of anything good to say about it. I like what I like. You know, I make no apologies about it. Turnabout is fair play. I've literally watched 10 seasons of Bob Ross, The Joy of Painting. It is fantastic. At least we didn't lead lives of quiet desperation. Sorry, our producer jumped in with with the drop there and cut you off. That was a pretty funny comment you made. <laughs> Did, <laughs> she me a second. Did she laugh? Did she laugh in a while? That was pretty good. Uh, so, so Derek, I also want to mention Matthew Perry died recently from Friends, obviously. And so you and I got chatting and we got talking. And we were talking about like sitcoms and stuff like that. And you know, oh, Matthew Perry was like, whether or not you liked Friends or not, like you got to give props to the guy. I mean, for lots of reasons. Personally, he overcame a lot of his demons. I think he dedicated a lot of his time to try and help other people overcome their demons, which is very great. And if you look at his performance on that show, he basically personified an entire comedic delivery technique. Like, I mean, I love the the one episode where uh, Joey puts on all of his clothes. Yeah. And he walks in and he's like, could I be wearing any more clothes? Like just to personify the way that Chandler always spoke and delivered his lines. It was pretty good. But like I say, it got us, you know, talking and talking about sitcoms and stuff. And like, I, like I was, I was just talking about second city as sort of a dying art form, you know, for me anyway, but I want to have a conversation with you about the sitcom as a dying art form, because yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up because yeah. I, I didn't want to just jump right into the top lists right away. I think there's a little bit of ground we need to cover and, and discuss just. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I know where you're going. So let, let's keep going here. There, there was a time you know, there was a time back in my day, young fella. There was a, a time when sitcoms ruled the world. Every night, prime time was basically sitcoms from like eight o'clock until 10 o'clock, you know, all week long. And then everything changed. And I blame Survivor. Okay, so hear me out. So for me, the show Survivor killed sitcoms. So all through the 70s and 80s and 90s, sitcoms were sort of the gold standard for TV programming. And then in the summer of 2000, Survivor came along and basically changed TV forever. It got these crazy huge ratings. Everyone in the country was following the show. It was like an event, you know, every week. And then I think... You know, producers, TV producers realized that, you know, quote unquote, reality TV was way more profitable because it's cheaper to produce. You don't have to pay for stuff like writers and talent. Right. And Survivor sort of, I guess, directly and indirectly killed sitcoms directly because it made reality TV a thing, you know, and was cheaper to produce. And indirectly, it led to the resurgence of game shows in the early 2000s, if you remember. Because of the, 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 the popularity of Survivor, mass audiences started to get fed this steady diet of game shows. They were all about competition and real people. If you remember, the first one was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? There was things like Deal or No Deal, Greed. There was The Amazing Race, The Weakest Link, Big Brother. Like It just went on and on and on. And so reality TV sort of just took over. And it became so pervasive. Like MTV gave up music programming just like the Canadian version, Much Music did. Remember, it would be rebranded yep. Much. Yep. So the result of all this reality TV crap and this new game show TV, you know, fad stuff, it meant sitcoms, they were thrown aside. They died, right? Like big time. Death. Like I, I blame it all on Survivor. 
So, so Derek, what's your, what's your take on all this? You, you th- am, I, am I right on this? Or am I just a crotchety old man? I keep, well, in mind, I keep in mind, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, the way. No <laughs> they can both be true. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I think one of the other uh, factors that was a catalyst in there was the fact that there was a writer's strike. And that was a big part of why things like Survivor were were coming out, because it was like, how do you get around a writer's strike? Well, you try and come up with television programming that doesn't directly need a writer. And so that included things like game shows and those, we'll call them reality competition shows, things like Survivor Amazing Race, where mm-hmm. from from what I understand, the the way that the the writers guilds work, they're sort of like, yeah, you're still in the writers guild, but you're a different section or something. Again, I have friends who uh, are explaining all this to me now because obviously we just came through a writer's strike and the actors are still on strike. So I'm learning a lot more about it now just because I have a lot more people that are are tied to that livelihood. But I do remember at the time a lot of a lot of the scripted TV shows instead of doing 22 episodes when they knew the writer's strike was coming, they, they shortened them to like 10 or 12 or 13 episodes. And, um, and so, you know, in order to, to put some, some form of original programming on in order to generate those advertising dollars, you got things like survivor. And I think it's an unfortunate case of Pandora's box, right? Once the box is open, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And, We've talked about it before. Like, why is there so much intellectual property and and sequels? Well, because that's where the easy money is. And everything in this industry, uh, entertainment industry, is driven by the dollars and cents. So why would you spend all this extra money to do a traditional sitcom when you can produce these other shows that are ratings bonanzas at a fraction of the cost? So, yeah, I think I think it was all, you know, maybe not a perfect storm, but it was definitely a storm of some sort. And um it changed and there was there was no going back. And unfortunately, I think it also the timing was such that you started to get things like uh, YouTube and the Internet generation of young kids who didn't really want programming fed to them at a specific time on a specific day. They wanted it when they wanted it. And so you got you know more and more people going to the Internet to watch things like YouTube. So it it sort of changed the the expectation of what TV would be. So it was hard a couple of years later to say, hey, Wednesday nights at eight o'clock, we've got your favorite 30 minute program full of commercials. It's like, well, why would I go back to watching that kind of TV? Like that doesn't interest me. And uh, and I think that's why you see so few of those kinds of shows having success in the last 15 to 20 years. But I mean, there were exceptions and and many of those exceptions are going to be on my list. But uh, yeah, it is. It's uh, it was a perfect storm, so to speak. Yeah, the last real sitcom I can think of was The Big Bang Theory. You know, and I'm sure you're going to get into some other ones. But I remember seeing something on Netflix. At least I think it was Netflix. It was it was definitely one of the streamers. But it was a show called The Ranch. And it had, I think it was Ashton Kutcher and Sam Elliott, if I remember. And it was these, these two cowboys and there was this laugh tracks. It was absolutely god-awful. Like, god-awful. Mm. But... I don't. I don't know of too many other real sitcoms right now. I. I. I don't. I don't want to ask you for too many because you, you might have them on your list. But like, they yeah, don't really I, exist though, do they? No, not in the traditional sense. And and but but let me sort of let me back it up a bit. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I found um, when I was you know doing the homework and putting the, trying to put my list together was I found that it seemed to me that traditionally, like let's say pre two thousand, even even. Well, yeah, let's say pre-2000. A lot of the sitcoms ultimately followed a similar kind of formula, similar kind of setting. And and even as you look back every decade, there were sort of just reimaginings or or tweaks of the same sort of idea. And, and I found like 
a lot of the most successful sitcoms, a lot of the most long-running sitcoms really revolved around the family unit, right? You get the fat husband, skinny wife, and a couple of kids, and and you know you throw the mix together. Of course, it, you change it here and there where you make uh, you know something a little different, um, but that that seemed to be the prevailing success uh, recipe for a long, 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 long time. And I mean, you still see some of that on on shows, you know, even more recently, but. Um, it was hard for me when I went back to put my list together to sort of say, well, which ones were my favorite? It's like I started looking at some of them a little more with a little more distance and thinking, well, that one was really just sort of the same as that one. And that one was sort of the same as that one, just, you know, 10 years apart or 15 years apart or, oh, that's the same one. But now instead of the family being white, the family's black. Oh, instead of the dad being the breadwinner, the mom's the breadwinner. But it's like it was essentially the same formula. And even when you start looking at the episodes, you know, you start to get, oh, well, it's about a family. So then you would have episodes about like, you know, someone has a problem with alcohol. Someone gets caught shoplifting. Someone gets has problems with a teacher at school. Like these are, are common themes that are going to continue to be applicable for every generation that watches these shows. So you're going to get those kinds of episodes just told with the new cast and the new characters. And then obviously you the new spin on whatever the, the well, I don't want to call it a gimmick, but whatever the new interpretation of the formula is, sometimes that brings a new perspective to some of these kinds of shows. And, you know, I, I, I would never really been like sitcoms have never really been my favorite. Like I'm a big TV guy. I've always watched TV. Uh, you know, I love television. I still have, in addition to all the streamers, I still have a ridiculously large cable package. Like uh, TV is a big part of my life. But the more I started thinking about it, the more I realized sitcoms are never really been my thing. I've been more about dramas. Like I wanted those, those long, deep stories where you're developing character. And I found that with a lot of the sitcoms, you you may have eventually had some character development, but so many of them were were designed to just be that twenty two minute runtime, uh, you know, the three act play with the commercial breaks in between, very and right? very formulaic. Yeah. And and of course, because they always take place, like what do they call it? The the, the two camera shot. There's something. Yeah. There's a technical term about it. Yeah, just basically it's, a two camera. The two camera, and it's like so it always takes place in one or maybe two rooms, mm -hmm. and it's usually the main room of the house. If it's if it's a family unit, it's usually the main room of the house and the kitchen. For for the most part, that's where you sort of had your your action. I think that's uh, what I like about it though, because I think coming out of theater, like like I have, as a theater actor, I always liked that theater type feel of the two camera shoot. You know, mm -hmm. it was just it was just, it was like going to see a play. You know. Yeah, that's yeah, what I liked and, about it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, I guess I never until I started to break it down uh, in the last week when I was doing the homework. I sort of went. Oh, well, you know, this show is sort of just the same as this show is just sort of the same as this show. And and to me, that almost made them all a little less special when you started to realize that they're all just sort of built in the same way. And, and then I started to look at the ones that were sort of the outliers. And I realized those are the ones that I tended to enjoy more um, because it, it showed me something different that I hadn't seen before. You, you'd get a show that maybe took place in a location that hadn't been done before. Uh, you know, you have. It, your show either takes place at home or at work. And it's like, okay, well, if it's a show about work, where's the work? Like, is it a bar? Is it a restaurant? Is it a law office? It, is it a, a, you know, whatever it might be. And I found that those were the ones that I, I tend to enjoy more because that you could come up with more original ideas. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a lot of universal themes that show up in, in any work-related comedy sitcom. But if your work-related takes place in a taxi stand, like then you can have episodes that are a little more specific to that location. And uh, I found those kinds of things generally tended to speak to me a little more. But anyway, we can get into a little yeah, more as we go so, through our list. So we decided but. to go ahead and put together a top five list. 
we each have a top five of our five favorite sitcoms. Not necessarily the most critically acclaimed or the most popular, but I, I wanted to mention, like, there was a couple of shows I, that I loved, but I don't think I really classified them as sitcoms. Like The sure. Love Boat, for example. There was okay. a laugh track on it, but it was more of a drama, mm-hmm. I felt, you know? And MASH was another one. I felt MASH had, like, I don't know if it was just too much blood or... It was a bit of a polarizing show, to, so I, I don't really think of it as a quote-unquote sitcom. But a couple ones that just finished outside the top five for me, this might be surprising. They may be... Yeah, I got, list, I got I a few know. as well, so I'm glad we're doing this ahead of time. Yeah. Yep, go. And and, and you, we don't know each other's list, so I don't know if, if you were going to mention these, but Cheers is one that actually finished outside my top five. It is one of the best sitcoms ever, I will admit that, like at least from a critical perspective. Mm-hmm. It, it's got a great setting. I mean, you know, who can't relate to a bar? And it had a great cast and top-notch writing, but it, it, it just didn't, it fell outside for me. And then some old ones, like I Love Lucy, was one of the very first sitcoms. It, it sort of set the standard for that that two-camera shoot we were talking about, like and things like The Wacky Neighbors and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Mary Tyler Moore might be the the example of the perfect sitcom. Like, it was reflective of its time, it had amazing writing, maybe the best all-around cast ever in television. But for me personally, it just it fell outside the list. But needless to say, all of my sitcoms are, you know, either from the 70s or 80s. That's the way it is. But Yeah, I figured that was probably the way. And honestly, mine, mine tend to be a lot newer. I only have one from the 90s and all the rest were newer. I figured yeah. we'd just stay, in, stay out of each other's way. Yeah. But like you, I had a few that fell not really fell off my list like they're obviously not included in my list but i did feel that any discussion about sitcoms would would be uh incomplete without at least acknowledgement so the first one i want to mention is all in the family now this came out way before my time i i did revisit it in reruns when i was a teenager and even then some of the material was still uh wasn't like it was a little over my head just again i was immature and inexperienced i didn't necessarily understand what some of the stuff was about but i know my parents really enjoyed all in the family and so i can remember watching it with them and even now looking back i like i see clips on youtube and they they constantly talk about like you know how the character of archie bunker was unlike anyone else on tv like he's clearly a racist and a bigot but by having that kind of a character on tv you you know you could go to the extreme with an issue or a or something that they wanted to talk about and have this character you know, saying these outrageous things, but to a point where it's so far in that direction that you realize just how ridiculous it is. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, all in the family is constantly talked about as, as a groundbreaking show, a groundbreaking sitcom. And, uh, I think that, uh, I I'm just not familiar enough with the content. It's so far before my time that I couldn't in just like, couldn't include on my list, but I did feel it needed to be mentioned. Um, the second one I want to mention is the Cosby show. And of course, unfortunately, we have the Bill Cosby of it all. So that makes it a little dicey. And and we've sort of had this debate a couple of times in some other shows. We talked about TV moms. And so we talked about Mrs. Huxville as a TV mom. Again, the Bill Cosby of it all sort of taints that a little bit. But you can't you can't talk about sitcoms and not talk about the impact of the Cosby show to, you know, it was really, uh, you know, so influential for so many reasons. The fact that it had this affluent family of color uh, in prime time. And uh, again, it's that family unit, but and they they tackled a lot of the same issues that we had seen before uh, in their shows. It was there was a lot of humor. I mean, Bill Cosby at the time was a uh, a renowned comedian and was able to to bring that talent to the show, despite some of the other creepy things that we now know were also happening. Um, 
so again, I, I think we have and, to. And the show, the show was almost improvisational in nature. Yes. Like it was, it was quite groundbreaking too. Yeah. Well, and what it did, uh, you know, the fact that it was able to give a spotlight to people of color and, and, um, you know, African-American culture and, and just things like that, that white America had not had an opportunity to be exposed to before and to give that representation to those people of color who are now able to watch TV and say, I can see myself. Look at these family. They're wealthy as a doctor and a lawyer as, as the parents, like these kids have the same problem I have, despite the fact their parents are well off. You know, it's, it's such an important show for so many reasons. So I, I think we have to at least mention it. And the third one, which I know is definitely not on your list. And it literally just squeaked off of mine. I had it on my list until just today is modern family. So obviously this is a more recent, um, a more recent sitcom, it, Critical Darling. It won all the awards every year it was on. It ran a long time, um, and it was sort of the 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 family sitcom, but with today's lens, where you've got you know the dad has remarried a much younger woman who's the same age as his kids, and you've got the one son who is gay. Who you know up until then we hadn't really seen uh, you know a, a same sex couple on TV in this kind of accepting way. And, uh, and then you have the traditional family where it's the mom and dad and the three kids. So it was, again, it was sort of taking that traditional formula and sort of turning it on its head, but also leaning on that sort of documentary style that had been introduced with the office where you have cutaways of the characters speaking directly to camera. So it was, it was, uh, again, building on the success that had come before it and then doing it a little differently and really raising the bar for what sitcoms could be. So three shows that are not on my list, but I feel absolutely needed to be mentioned on any discussion about sitcoms that, that, that cover what we cover. So All in the Family, Cosby Show, Modern Family, not on my list, but definitely capital H, honorable mentions. All good. So you want to start with your number five? What have you got? Sure. So this is my oldest one, and I'm fairly confident it's not going to be on your list, but it might be because it did start in the 80s. I'm going with Married with Children. So ran from 1987 to 1997, 11 seasons. 263 episodes it was on Fox. It was one of the first big shows to premiere when the Fox network started. And it when basically this thing, put Fox on the map, it totally did. Yeah. And so like this show was unlike anything at the time, because up until then, everyone's family on TV liked each other, was positive, you know, good, strong family values. And, and teenager me, like if this came out in 87, I would have been 13, 14 years old. What I loved about it was, family couldn't stand each other. They were constantly like snippy with each other and making fun of each other. But then they would have some sort of common problem. And you would see that they, they genuinely loved each other and, and you know, it's uh, would come together when they needed to. But at the same time, it was like this married couple that had been together 15 or 20 years that were sort of like clearly just bored with each other. And it was like, yeah, whatever. They made fun of each other. Uh, never in a mean way, but it, I, as a, as a teenager, I thought it was hilarious. And when I was thinking back to sitcoms that I watched and genuinely laughed out loud as I was watching it, this was one of the only ones that I, I can remember that I genuinely laughed out loud almost every single episode. There was something I found funny about it. Now, I'm sure if I went back and rewatched them today, a lot of the humor probably does not hold up by today's standards. Uh, and I fully acknowledge that's probably the case. And, uh, you know, I haven't haven't gone back to watch 260 episodes, but uh, in, 
in the moment, I do remember really enjoying this and I know it did very well. It had definitely found an audience and it was outside of the traditional audience, but there was a lot of people that liked it. So uh, this is my number five of my favorite sitcoms, Married with Children. Nice. And, and like we mentioned, it put Fox on the map along with The Simpsons. And, um, you know, speaking of The Simpsons, uh, you and I, we, we like I said, we don't know each other's lists going into this. But one thing that we did mention to each other was we weren't going to do anything that was animated. That's a good point. Yeah, we should probably mention that. Yeah. Because like, yeah, they are situation comedies, but really they're not. They're animated shows, even if they're they're for adults like the, the Flintstones or you know, the Jetsons. Or, or Family Guy. Like, yeah, you, and yeah. You could you could argue that those follow this. I mean, Family Guy Simpsons are a perfect example. You know, fat yeah. husband, skinny wife, three yep. kids like that's that's every sitcom. <laughs> but yeah, we decided to leave those off. OK. So I want to go into one, but before I get, I want to kind of set it up. I want to talk about this notion of the spinoff. So sitcoms were so popular back in the day that they had spinoffs. And these were sitcoms that spun off from another sitcom. So if you're not familiar with the, the, with the concept, basically they would take characters from one sitcom and give them their own show. Like Happy Days was one of the kings of spinoffs because it had Mork and Mindy and Laverne and Shirley and Joni Loves Chachi and Blansky's Beauties, if you know that one. Or you could even argue Out of the Blue or Out of the Blue was a, a Happy Day spinoff because Mork and Fonzie were on it. But uh, you mentioned um, uh, All in the Family. That was a yep. really pro- prolific uh, spinoff machine. Yep. Because yep. it had Archie Bunker's Place and Gloria and Checking In and 704 Hauser and Maud. Maud. And then yep. Maud spun off another show, Good Times. But one spinoff from All of the Family is my number five sitcom of all time. And you mentioned the Cosby show as being, you know, depicting a black affluent family. This one came before. That's the Jeffersons. Oh, I good love pick. I love this show. So it ran on CBS from 75 to 84, 11 seasons. Bounced around quite a bit, but it's it settled in on Sunday nights. So between 1980 and 1982, it was a top three show on television. This show was amazing, if you've never seen it. The chemistry between the two leads, Sherman Hemsley and Isabel Sanford, some of the best chemistry in TV history. They were so well cast in that show. And this show tackled everything. It wasn't just a sitcom, really. It looked at race in America. You know, you've got this successful black man depicted on television, which was groundbreaking, you know, for the time. Hard to believe. But George Jefferson was one of the best... TV characters ever. Like you hate him and you love him all at the same time. He, he slams doors in people's faces. He calls his white neighbor, Tom Willis, a honky. Like he doesn't approve of Willis's biracial marriage. So in a lot of ways, you're like, I should hate this guy. But you realize he's been pushed around his whole life, you know, which was sort of a metaphor for the way black people were treated in America. So he, he finally moves on up. And decides he's going to unload on people for a change. And it's it's just, it's one of the most watchable shows ever. Like, I could just sit there and watch episode after episode of this show. It was nominated for 14 Emmy Awards over its run. Isabel Sanford won in 1984. She became the first African-American actress to win an Emmy for Best Actress in a Comedy Series. Um, it was a part of the spinoff craze of the 70s. Like I mentioned, it was groundbreaking at times it was almost heartbreaking, you know, but it was always really, really funny. So Jefferson's my number five. 
on your number. Nice. Good yeah. pick. I was never really a big fan of the Jeffersons, but uh, I know a lot of people that loved it and I can certainly respect and appreciate what, uh, what it did. So uh, yeah, good pick. All right. Uh, so all the rest of my picks now are shows that debuted in 2000 or later. I want, Wanted to try and focus on some of the more recent stuff. So, well, that is your job around here. Uh, yeah. So my uh, my next pick, I'm going. My number four pick here is Community. So Community ran for six seasons, went from 2009 to 2015. Uh, seasons one to five aired on NBC, and then the last season was picked up and actually ran on Yahoo Network for uh, in the, its final season. It ran 110 episodes altogether. Uh, it was created by. Um, uh, oh my God, what's his name? Dan Harmon, who is also one of the co-creators of Rick and Morty, who has also recently gotten in some hot water over some domestic disputes. And uh, hey, man, if you beat your wife, you deserve to be canceled. Um, so uh, anyway, that aside, the show is it, it is and was quite different than what had been out there before. So this is one of those ones where it's we'll call it a workplace uh, sitcom in that it takes place at a community college and uh, the cast Talk about a great cast. So this almost everybody in this cast went on to do great things if they weren't already doing great things. Um, it had Joel McHale, Donald Glover, Chevy Chase, uh, Danny Pudi, Allison Brie, Ken Jong, um, Yvette Nickel Brown and Julian Jacobs. Like they were the core group and uh, like they just they just killed it every episode. And the, the writing was great. The characterizations were great. The performances were great. And uh, it was it was largely based at least the first couple of seasons were largely based on Dan Harmon's personal experiences at this community college but the beauty of a situation comedy that takes place somewhere like a college is you can have people come in and come out almost every week and it makes sense like it's a kind of kind of location where you know so and so shows up for a couple episodes oh that's that's a student that's why he's here or oh this is a visiting professor that's why they're here so it's uh that's one of the things that i always find with with sitcoms where they take place in the home is how do you bring on guest stars oh it's cousin this person and uncle that person it's like wow this family's pretty big like they've had 50 guest stars that are all distant cousins so at least when you've got a sitcom that takes place in someone's workplace or or something like this you can bring on guest stars every now and then and it doesn't seem as weird but uh the the line that i pulled here from wikipedia that i really liked is it says uh about community it makes use of meta humor and pop culture references paying homage to film and television cliches and tropes and i think that's part of the reason i liked it so much is Dan Harmon, I've I've really uh, enjoyed the stuff that he's worked on over the years, and I found that it was just very, um, very, very much. Uh, w I'm trying to think of even how to describe this. It's just he, he basically felt like like you and I, Chris. It's just someone who clearly is into pop culture, knows movies, knows TV, knows music, and wants to talk about nerdy things with other people that have a similar interest. And that that clearly came across in this show as the characters had dialogue with each other. It just, it felt very real. And it felt like these were people that, that I might know and hang out with to a certain extent. Whereas I find with a lot of the other sitcoms, um, you know, it's just sometimes it's hard to relate. Uh, whereas this one for me, it, it really sort of hit home because I was able to, uh, to sort of find commonality with a lot of the characters based on the kind of things that they did and that they talked about. So my number four pick is community. Nice. And, and as you have the new stuff, you mentioned they're all 2000 and, and forward. I got the old stuff. So my number four is Alice. So oh, I love that show. Think about this. A sitcom based on a comedy drama film directed by Martin Scorsese. It's like, what? <laughs> so in 1974, he released his film, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. 
starring Alice, uh, Ellen Burstyn as this woman that moves across the country. She tries to find a better life for her and her son. And somebody somewhere actually thought this might make a good sitcom. Go figure. But the thing is, they were right. I loved this show when I was a kid. It's so simple. It takes place basically all in one setting. Mel's Diner, which is these three waitresses and Mel, the cook and owner, and the customers that they deal with, like Henry, Marvin Kaplan, and Dave Madden from the Partridge family. He was a regular too. And the show always dealt with the issues going on in the waitresses' lives and stuff. On its face, this show should not be very good, but it totally was. It is one of the first shows, too, on TV that I remember where characters actually spoke with accents. Because up till that that point, like everyone on TV talked the same. Like it's it's been this practice for years for for actors and news reporters and stuff to lose their regional dialect. Accent they they speak in like quote unquote normal if that's a thing. I guess like a neutral accent. I don't know what the right terminology would be, but you know, in this show here you got flow with this southern accent. Alex Alice speaks with a a New England accent, you know, because that's where she came from. And Vera is this ditzy waitress. <laughs> I loved her. Beth Howland was so good in the role. It got her typecast for life, though. But uh, but Polly Holiday was typecast for doing Flow, too. Um, yeah. She well, and, the, and Mel as well. He spoke yeah. with more, like, you would think, like, a New York or New Jersey-style accent. You're right. He did. Um, so Polly Holiday left the show after the fourth season. She was Flow. Um, the show ran on CBS for nine seasons between 76 and 84. And then after Flo left, you know, she got her own show that bombed. They brought in Diane Ladd as Belle for seasons four to five. And funny enough, she played Flo in the film. And then that the chemistry wasn't quite there. So they brought in Celia Weston as Jolene. And she was really good. I thought I liked those episodes. And then Vic Tabak, like you mentioned, he was Mel. Like what a character he was. He's like yelling at the girls. His shirt was always dirty. Like you'd never want to eat there. You know? No. But no. it was always fun to watch. I love that show. It's not available on any of the streamers. I do have episodes on DVD. I always enjoy going back and watching them. So that was my uh, my number four. Nice. So your number three. What do you got, my friend? Uh, my number three is uh, a little sitcom that ran from 2005, 2014, and it's called How I Met Your Mother. And part of the reason this made my list is they've actually just recently started rerunning these. And so my wife and I have been watching them in syndication for the last probably couple of months now. And we just keep saying, wow, this show is really good. Like, I'm, it, it's really holding up. Uh, I mean, not that it's that old, but, you know, sometimes you go back and you watch something. And you're like, wow, I remember this a lot more fondly than it really is. This was this is the opposite. I'm I'm we're really enjoying the show. Obviously, there are some issues with any show you go back and watch years later. Like, you know, some of these episodes are 15 years old now. There are some problematic components of it. But for the most part, it's it's quite good. We're really enjoying it. So How I Met Your Mother, for those who maybe aren't as familiar, uh, ran nine seasons on CBS, 2005, 2014, 208 episodes. And uh, I'll just read you the description here. It says it follows the main character, Ted Mosby, and his group of friends in New York City's Manhattan as a framing device. Ted, in 2030, recounts to his son and daughter the events from September 2005 to May 2013 that led him to meet their mother, hence the title, How I Met Your Mother. And 
So in the future, you never get to see Ted. You just hear his voice. You get to see him looking at the two children and they're just sitting on the couch and he's telling them these stories. Well, the voice of him in the future is Bob Saget. So Bob Saget is the narrator, even though he sounds nothing like the main, the performer who actually plays the young Ted Mosby. Um, but no, this it's again, it's just one of these simple kind of shows. It's about five friends and you you get to know them all in the in the first episode and you just watch them sort of coming of age. They're in their early 20s at the beginning. They're all just like one of the characters is still in college and the other ones have just recently graduated. They're all trying to find work. They all those who have jobs, have crappy jobs. And through the course of the the show, right, they they improve themselves and they they get better jobs and some of the characters get married and eventually have children and all that stuff as, as any show this this you know is this typical thing with the sitcom but but i think that one of the things that i really liked about it and that i'm really appreciating now when i'm rewatching it is the writing of the show is such that it's clear that when they were writing each season they mapped out what was going to happen, maybe not writing every episode simultaneously, but even though they were putting out, say, 20 episodes a season, they knew that in episode 16 or 17, we're going to do a blah, blah, blah episode. And what they do often is because the, the main character is supposed to be narrating from the future and knows what all the stories are going to eventually be, he'll start to say, there was this time when so-and-so did this thing. And then they'll start to show that scene. And about 10 seconds in, he'll go, no, hold on a minute. I need to tell you this other story first. And then he never goes back to the thing that he set up at the beginning. But then like 10 episodes later, he goes, okay, remember when I told you we about this thing? Now that you know about something else, let's go into that. And I found this show did that a lot where they would tease certain things that we, the audience, haven't seen yet but will be coming later but because of the way the show's framing device is set up, it makes sense that the narrator might not always tell things in a perfectly linear fashion. And uh, and I really I find it really, really works. And when you binge watch it, which is sort of what we're doing now, it it, it works even better. So uh, but no, I, I found the characters are interesting. I found the humor's good. And uh, no, I just I like this one. This is another uh, more recent comedy that I feel really worked. And uh, the character of Barney Stinson, um, played by um, uh, Doogie Howser, what's his real name? Neil Patrick Harris. Uh, again, some of his, some of the stuff that he does and says doesn't necessarily hold up. But knowing that this is a, a gay performer who's playing uh, a straight womanizer on on the like in the show, I think makes it a little funnier because they obviously knew that when they were writing the character, which almost gives them a little bit of a license to be more creepy than you would normally allow or want a character to be. But behind the scenes, we know like wink, wink, he's really a gay guy. He's not, he's not like that. It sort of almost gives him a little bit of forgiveness, but anyway, rambling how I met your mother is my, uh, my number three pick. Yeah. My wife really liked that show a lot. And I've watched a few episodes because of her. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Uh, I'm going to go back. Surprise, surprise. And my number three actually might surprise you because you probably thought it might be my number one and that's happy days. I was so, sure that would be your number one. Yeah, it's only number three for me. But, and here's why, because season one is awful. I mean, God awful. Like it's almost unwatchable. They basically try to do a TV version of American graffiti. You know, it was even okay. shot on film and season two wasn't much better. You know, it, it started to take a little bit more of a traditional sitcom style Season three, much better. And then season four, it really hit its stride. 
And here's the thing about the show, though. Like, everyone always uses the term jump the shark to mm-hmm. indicate, you know, when a show has gone past its prime. But on Happy Days, Fonzie jumped the shark at the beginning of season five. The show only got better after that, actually. They brought on Chachi. Fonzie moved above the garage in the Cunningham's house. Al replaced Arnold. The show got better after Fonzie jumped the shark. So do not believe what you read on the internet and then what you see in memes. Um, but, you know, once the show sort of became that like a, like, a, like a standard sitcom, it just took off. Like, it was one of the most popular TV shows of the 70s. Fonzie was the pop culture god, you know, back then. And also, my all-time favorite celebrity, you know, Henry Winkler, is one of my favorite human beings in the world. I love that guy. I've introduced Happy Days to my kids. They love it. I love it. It's on Pluto TV, so I watch it all the time on there, and it is my number three sitcom of all time. So, I'm I'm still in shock that it wasn't your number one. I'm kind of curious what you feel in your mind beat it, considering yeah. how how much high regard. And you already eliminated the Love Boat, so I know. What the I, I can only think of I can only think of one other one that you talk about all the time, and I'm like, but you've got two picks left, so I'm really not sure where this is going. This is gonna be. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, what's your number? Okay, two? my number two. Uh, so my number two is a show that I, I only recently came to watch and I talked about it on the podcast not too long ago, uh, like in the last few months, I, I binged the entire series and that's 30 Rock. So 30 Rock was on from 2006 to 2013, originally aired on NBC, ran seven seasons, 138 episodes. I binged them all in the course of like maybe six weeks earlier this year and uh, I thought it was great. I, I really kind of regret not watching it in the moment. Uh, and being a part of those, dis- you know, when when people, you know, like we talked about that, uh, uh, you know, must see TV, sort of the everyone watching it as an event television. Mm-hmm. Like I can remember people that were watching it, talking about it. And I because I didn't know anything about it, I obviously didn't pay attention. But it's like it was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. The writing was great. Performances were great. And um, Alec Baldwin you know, like this is this is the role he's going to be remembered for. Like if he was to drop dead tomorrow, this would be it. They'd be they would say Alec Baldwin, comma, of 30 Rock fame, like he was he was fantastic. And I, I was never a huge fan of Alec Baldwin until I watched him in this. And he's fantastic. And well, luckily uh, he made it through the whole run. How many seasons was it? Seven. Seven seasons without shooting anyone. Oh, my. Yeah, that we know of. Too soon? Yeah, probably. Uh, but anyway, for those who maybe uh, are not as familiar, 30 Rock is uh, written... Uh, uh, the series is created by Tina Fey, and it's based on her experiences as the head writer on Saturday Night Live. The show 30 Rock takes place behind the scenes of a fictional live sketch comedy show that is obviously very much supposed to be like Saturday Night Live. Um, and uh, the 30 Rock of the title is the address 30 Rockefeller place, I believe, is the address. It's the address of the building where NBC is. And um, again, it's... Uh, it, it was a critical darling. It was nominated for uh, a, a primetime Emmy for the best comedy every year of the seven years it was on the air. It won three years in a row in uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. And uh, it ended up being nominated for 103 Emmys during the course of its seven year run. And it won 16. Wow. So I'm like, well, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, well, you know, this show has some bright spots. When it gets nominated for 100 Emmys, it had a lot of bright spots. It was it lived up to the hype, and let me tell you that that's a tough bar. Um, no, this show is great. If you haven't watched it, do what I did, binge it. It's available on the streamers now, and um, because it's still 
quite recent, I found that I didn't really, in, at least when I was watching it, I didn't really find any real issues or problems. Like, you know, like I've been saying, some of these ones you go back and you're like, oh, this is a little problematic. You look at it through today's lens. I think co a combination of it still being relatively new and the fact that Tina Fey as a woman obviously is a lot more sensitive to some of these things than probably dudes are. So, uh, it definitely, um, took that into consideration. And I think it just, you know, speaks to her ability to be able to flag those things and avoid them. So yeah, 30 rocks, my number two, nice. it's, it's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, give it a watch. So what have I got left? My, my two, like you mentioned, I think you could probably guess what one of them would be. One. Well, I, I don't want to spoil it for yeah. it. I don't want to say it in case I, yeah. I miss and I don't want to ruin it if I'm right. So yeah, I'm curious. You, you probably yeah. know what one of them is, but one, it, my number two actually is Seinfeld. Really? Okay. Yeah, that was not, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that in a hundred years. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is usually most TV shows follow a similar pattern. Like they start slow they take a few seasons to sort of find their groove, you know, especially for the actors and the writers to really mesh with the characters. And then, you know, these shows, they settle into this familiar format and then slowly decline. Happy Days, perfect example of that, right? Mm -hmm. Not all shows fit that pattern. Different strokes. I used to like that show too. The best season was season one. And then it slowly got worse every season after that. And another one that didn't fit that pattern was Seinfeld. You know, the first season of Seinfeld was kind of crappy, actually. Like Kramer hadn't found his character fully yet, and neither had George. Jason Alexander in the early season, he was basically playing a caricature of Woody Allen, you know? Yeah, he, he wasn't as funny. He was no. more of the straight man to Jerry's. Yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like the show just kept getting better and better. And for me... You know, the best season was season nine, the last season. The Merv Griffin set in Kramer's oh, living room. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. The butter shave, the meat slicer. Like, that show was firing on all cylinders at the end of its run. And it went out on top. Um, I would put Seinfeld on my list probably just for season nine alone. Like, and then the fact, if you think about everything else, you also got... The contest, the yada yada, the, the the close talker. There's the bubble boy, the puffy shirt. Like Seinfeld made probably one of the single greatest contributions to pop culture of all time. You know, just all from a show about nothing. When you think yeah, of it, it's pretty impressive. Fair. You know, so it's number two for me. So yeah, it's fair. Uh, honestly, you and I have talked about this before. You don't uh, like I it? never watched Seinfeld yeah. when it was on the air. I was never a big fan. Uh, I've I've come back to it in reruns over the years. I probably never watched. I've probably only seen about half of the episodes, but all the ones you've mentioned, I'm at least familiar with if I haven't actually watched them. And and there are definitely some some top shelf A plus episodes like the contest is certainly one of the all time greats. The Merv Griffin set is another one where one. where he's got the Merv and, and Jerry's dating the woman with the wall full of toys the like toys. it's just the ones. And the thing I find with that show is the ones that are great are the ones where. All the two or three, like cause with most sitcoms, when especially even a show like Friends, where you have six main characters every week, you have to pair off the characters and you have two or three different stories happening simultaneously. I found with Seinfeld, the ones that were like just true gold are the ones where all of the stories were just outstanding. The ones where you had one great storyline mm -hmm. and the other two were sort of, well, they were just okay. Those ones weren't as good. But that the was ones season people... nine. In season nine, like all four of them got their own story every yeah. episode and they were all strong. Like that yeah. was, yeah, it, that made really, really made that, that season nine stand out for me. 
So, yeah. So, no, I can certainly, yeah. uh, certainly uh, appreciate the fact that you got it as number two. Uh, again, not not my favorite, yeah. but uh, I, a lot of people love it. So it definitely deserves to be. T- I still list, watch so. it. Every once in a while, I put it on a Netflix. I'll watch, you know, season nine episodes and I'll laugh. I've seen them a bazillion times. I still laugh and laugh and laugh. My wife's like, what are you laughing at? You've seen this. I don't care. I still find it funny. Love it. There you go. So, all right, on to your number one. Oh all right, my so my number one, really, this is probably 99% on my list because of recency bias, but uh, I'm going with the Big Bang Theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it, it just went off the air a couple seasons ago. It went from 2007 to 2019, print 12 seasons, arguably maybe one or two seasons too long, 280 episodes, which is crazy. And... You know, uh, I'm sure most people know the premise of this show. It's the two science nerds that uh, work at Caltech and uh, are roommates together. And across the hall, the beautiful waitress moves in and she's like, I'm moved here because I want to be an actress. And of course, immediately the one nerd's like, I'm going to marry her one day. I'm going to fall in love with this woman. And hilarity ensues. I did. Honestly, I started watching Big Bang Theory. I started in season one and I did not like it. So I stopped watching it. And then probably around season three, towards the end of season three, I thought I'll give it another try because a lot of people I knew were watching it really liked it. And by about start of season four, I started watching it in real time as they were happening. The reason I didn't like it originally, and and I'll I stick to this because they they have recently started them again at the beginning. I found in the first season they were making fun of the fact that these guys were nerds, like the fact that they were into computers and nerdy hobbies and comic books. That was the joke. And it reminded me too much of Revenge of the Nerds where, you know, oh, this guy's Chinese. That's the joke. Let's laugh at him. Oh, this guy's gay. That's the joke. Let's laugh at him. And that's not funny. And I found that when the Big Bang Theory season one came out, I felt that that was what was happening. It was, oh, look at these guys. They read comic books. That's hilarious. Let's laugh at them for reading comic books. And I found it wasn't until like season two and even into season three, probably as the characters got a little more developed, that the show started to just find funny situations. It wasn't making fun of the fact that they were nerdy. They were able to make nerdy jokes and one of the things that I think this show needs to be credited with is this idea of making geek into chic. Like I think there there have been and are so many people that by a traditional definition are nerdy and have nerdy hobbies and like things that, you know, in their youth they were probably ridiculed and picked on for for enjoying and participating in. Now that those people are grown-ups and have jobs and have money and have disposable income and have a say, these things are starting to become more acceptable. And I think the Big Bang Theory was was a catalyst for that where, you know, suddenly people were willing to say, yeah, I read comic books. I've been reading comic books for 20 years. Yeah, I play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I, I'm into computer games. And and then you have the rise of things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe happening, you know, almost in parallel with it where suddenly you know the biggest movie in the world is the marvel movie and suddenly everyone's like oh well tell me more about these comic books it's like yeah i've been telling trying to tell you for 20 years but you've been making fun of me until last year and i found that the show big bang theory really took a, a turn probably about by the third season where they started to embrace the fact that it wasn't the fact that they were nerdy that was the joke there was a lot of rich humor that they could put in there with the nerdy stuff being thrown in to emphasize the joke instead of being the joke. But I mean, the show ran 12 seasons. It was a, a ratings juggernaut. It spawned the the young Sheldon spinoff. And um, 
Yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, one of my favorite sitcoms. It's it's still in heavy rotation on in syndication. It's on every single day, usually multiple episodes per day. And I'll be honest, I probably watch a Big Bang episode three or four times a week minimum, especially if there's a good one on. There was one on just on tonight, one of my favorite episodes where they New Year's Eve party, they go to the comic store dressed as the Justice League characters. Like, that's got to be one of my top five favorite episodes. Like, when I saw it was on, I I literally stopped what I was doing and sat down and watched it for a half an hour. Like, some of these episodes, to me, are just so iconic. They're the, the best of the best of this show. And um, and again, maybe it's just because I can see myself to a certain extent in these characters where I, I don't necessarily have that familiarity with characters from some of these other shows. But you know, the fact that that these guys are clearly nerds and, and the things they do are things that I do. The things that are around their apartment, my wife is constantly pointing at. She goes, oh, my God, you have that same thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, so I think that's part of the reason that, I, that I've enjoyed this show so much is I could really relate to these characters and, and a lot of the things they did and, and a lot of the nerdy hobbies that they shared. And uh, and I could certainly appreciate how they brought that to the mainstream. So my number one sitcom, my number one favorite sitcom, uh, if you ask me today, which you are, is The Big Bang Theory. That That's a good one. And um, and like I never watched all the episodes. My wife liked that show. But so I got in, you know, I watched some here and there. One thing I really liked about that show was some of the secondary characters that they bring in. So yeah. they're so good. There were some that stand out to me. So there's the comic book store guy. He was pretty funny. And then there was a guy that worked with them or something. And he always talked with a bit of a lisp. Or something. Yeah. He had a funny way of talking with his W's and his L's. It was just so funny. And, and I that almost, guy was actually that guy that speaks to the lisp. Mm-hmm. He was actually supposed to be the Leonard character. He auditioned oh, for that role and he was on the short list and they ended up going with Johnny Galicki at the last minute. So what could have been the guy who played Barry could have been Leonard. So very interesting. And I also like there was a girl that dated one of the guys. I don't remember which one. And she was just this weird, quirky, odd character. <laughs> just I, th- I thought she was funny. <laughs> That's like half the women. I, know. I remember the one was dating. Um, oh, who's the the Indian character? What's his name? Raj. Raj. So there was a girl dating him one episode I watched not that long ago. And she was like, oh, I have a confession to make. I I hate music. I was like, what? Like, such a weird character quirk. And then, of course, Bernadette is on it. And I absolutely love Bernadette. I have, like, the biggest crush on her. I think she's hot. Yeah, I think she's way harder than Penny. But Oh, my God. So, yeah, there's so many things to like about that. Okay, so my number one, in my mind, anyway, the greatest sitcom of all time. No big surprise to you. A TV show about the radio. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, I'm talking about WKRP in Cincinnati. And if you've never seen this show and ever like only ever heard about it, I wish I could point you to a streaming service that's got it available, but it's not streaming anywhere. Like it's so I, I just can't do it. But in this show, I just got to talk about it. This show had it all. It, it had a great cast. One of the best casts in television history. And it had great writing. Like it had these wacky plots, but it also handled issues like, homosexuality and race and sex with a lot of humor, but also like head on. It didn't shy away from anything. They had had an entire episode where they just play a softball game, you know? Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the thing was for me, like who doesn't like an underdog? And this whole show was about underdogs. Like Johnny was kicked off the air for saying booger. Booger. I say worse stuff than that every week here on the show. You said worse stuff than that tonight. I know. Like, 
for example. Like I say bad things and, and he got kicked off the air for Sam Booger. And, you know, with, with speaking of underdogs, like Les Nessman was an under, underdog. Andy came across the country for a job. He was an underdog. Mr. Carlson, controlled by his mother, he's an underdog. Bailey, Venus, they're just all a bunch of misfit underdogs that just happen to work together. And they're just trying to make the best of it. You know, the, even the station is an underdog. It made it to like number six in Cincinnati after the ratings came in in one episode. They were so happy, you know? And and even the show itself was an underdog, if you think of it. It bounced around and it finally got canceled after four seasons. They didn't even get to do a finale or anything. But in retrospect, when you step back and look at the show, it ranks up there with, you know, all these critical favorites like MASH and Cheers and Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family. I think it's one of the best sitcoms ever made. Well, the Thanksgiving episode is clearly one of the best episodes of television ever that everybody knows. Know. If you've never seen the show, you know of that episode. Whether it's Canadian Thanksgiving or American Thanksgiving, you know, your social media, even to this day, after like that was in like what, 1979 when that episode came it was in season two, right? It was like, it's still pervasive today. Everybody still quotes it like turkeys away. I, God is my witness. I thought turkeys could fly. So, yeah, it's still around. It's It's got lasting power for a reason, you know? And if you, like I say, if I could just have you go back and watch it on the streamers, you know, you could, you could watch, like, even just the first, first season. So good. So good. So that's my number one. So anyway, you ready now to have some fun? Absolutely. All right, let's have some fun with Caveman. So one of the staples of any good sitcom Derek as I'm sure you know is the wacky neighbor okay the the concept of this started like way back with the very first sitcoms and it it stayed pretty much true to the sitcoms right through TV history so here's how this game works I'm going to give you the name of a wacky neighbor and all you have to do is name the sitcom I'm looking for the full title of the sitcom here. Okay? Oh, I thought you were going to go the other way. I thought you were going to give me the no. sitcom and ask me to name the wacky neighbor. I thought, no, oh my no, God, no. this nice is going to be easy. so hard. Nice. Okay, okay. Super I think I'll, I'll do okay. You're I think I'll do, do okay. okay on this one. Okay, let's start with some easy ones. Here's one. Here's a pair of them. Lenny and Squiggy. Lenny and Laverne Squiggy. Laverne and Shirley. Yeah, of course, Michael McKeon and David Lander. So, all right. Steve Urkel. Family Matters. And funny enough, I was just flipping around um, Pluto TV the other night, as I am wont to do when I'm watching The Love Boat on there. And they had like movies on there and they had this like one of those like two-headed shark versus mecha crocodile things or whatever. And Jaleel White was in that. I was like, geez, that's circle. Okay. I'm going to give you another wacky neighbor name the sitcom. Ed Norton. The Honeymooners. All right. Mr. Bentley. Mr. Bentley. Mr. Bentley. Mm-hmm. Is it different strokes? Oh, no. It was the Jeffersons. Paul. Oh, see, I, I never watched the Jeffersons. Mrs. Poole. Oh, that was. Um, you know it. That was the Valerie. It was. So it was Valerie. It was called Valerie, then Valerie's family, then the Harper family. Or the Hogan family. She also, it was Edie McClurg. She was also Herb Tarlick's wife, Lucille, on WKRP. All right, Wilona Woods. Wilona Woods. I have no idea. Janet Dubois played her on Good Times. Oh, yeah, never watched it. All right, you know this one. Marcy Rhodes slash Marcy Darcy. 
Oh, that was Married with Children. She, of course, became Marcy Darcy when she married Ted McGinley. Jeff, yeah, Jefferson Darcy. Yeah, the the TV show killer, Ted McGinley. Every time he joined the cast of a show, the show just was the killed. Love Boat, Happy Days, Married with Children, they all died. Okay, Rhoda Morgenstern. Oh, I know she got her own show. It was a spinoff of what the hell show was she was on? Mary Tyler Moore. Valerie Harper, right, from Valerie's family. All right, Mr. Heckles. Mr. Heckles was a wacky neighbor on what sitcom? Not a sitcom I ever watched. I don't know. Friends. That was from Friends. Really? Larry Hankin. He was also in Seinfeld. Remember when they did the, the, the pilot? He played Kramer. He was also in Home Alone. All right. Yeah. Kimmy Gibbler. Kimmy Gibbler. Oh, Kimmy was, um, you know, oh, that was the one with, uh, with, uh, yeah, in San Francisco, it was uh, full house. Played by Andrea Barber. Okay. Two more, both easy ones. I'm going to let you away with an easy one. Wilson. Oh, that was the over the fence guy, right? You never saw his face. That was the tool man show. What the hell was that one called? It was called home improvement. Home improvement. Very good. And the last one, Larry Dallas. Is that his last name was Dallas? Really? Uh, Three's Company. Richard Klein played Larry. You never ever heard his last name, really. No. He was always a a staple on those game shows, like Pyramid and stuff. He he was on all of them. And he was like a secondary character in the first like three seasons. And then he just became a cast regular and was in like every episode after Mm -hmm. that. So. You did really good. All right, so you did pretty good. Not bad. Wacky neighbors were always a big thing in sitcoms, so I yeah. felt it was. And they were pretty memorable. Look at them. So yeah, mo- most wacky neighbors were in most episodes. So if you watch the show, there's a pretty good chance you you were familiar with the wacky exactly. neighbors. Okay, so next time we come back, we're probably going to need to take a look at a movie celebrating a major milestone anniversary. Uh, I'm going to throw things over to you. Uh, what would you like to do next time? So I'm going to go with something newer-ish. Um, so and since we're coming into the holiday season here. I'll- I want to go to a holiday movie. So oh, nice. in, t- in 2003, 20 okay. years ago, mm-hmm. we got the movie Love Actually. So oh, I want you, you to mention this a while ago. I've so never we'll, seen Love Actually. Really? So never when we did it. our when we no. did our episode on best ensembles, I'm fairly certain this yeah, made my list. That might have been it, it. It's got a huge cast. And I actually saw this at its North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2003. And uh, and it was a crowd favorite. The crowd loved it. It uh, it did very well. And um, it's on TV every year around this time. It actually was on the other night. My wife and I caught the last 10 minutes and uh, we watch. This is one of those ones that we make sure we watch every year. Uh, You know, I don't always get through my entire library of Christmas films, but this one always makes a list. And it's it's immensely rewatchable, in my opinion. It is a little on the long side. I think it's about two hours and five, two hours and ten. But um, it's it's got a lot of good stuff in it. And I will tell you, if you are going to watch this, there is some nudity. So you may not want to have your kids around. Uh, I mean, it's it's some boobs, but uh, still. It's been a while since we saw a movie with some nudity, and I'm glad. This is nice. Yeah. So anyway, I just want to give you that back to the 80s here. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to give you that heads up because we always forget that there's a story in there where there's some nudity and then you start watching. You're like, oh, yeah, geez. And when they show it on network TV, they just cut that whole sequence right out of it. And um, yeah, it's kind of awkward. But anyway, 
let's go back. We'll watch Love Actually, okay. holiday film. Uh, it's celebrating its 20th anniversary, and uh, we'll come back next week and uh, we'll we'll deconstruct Love Actually. You can tell me if you loved it, you hated it. Uh, if your wife hasn't seen it, watch it with her. She may enjoy it too. Uh, and I'm I'm really looking forward to watching it. And this will kick off my Christmas mu- movie viewing uh, for this season. So. Yeah. Nice. All right. So I'm, I'm down with that. Like I say, I've never seen it. So I'll watch Love Actually. We'll come back. We'll review it. So until next show, I'm Chris McBrien. You're Derek Myers. And we're saying thanks for listening to our show, Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs>